0: this is howard kaplan the author of the historical novels the damascus cover and the syrian sunset and you're listening to me on the follow your dream podcast with robert miller everyone has a dream robert miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star he followed his dream and he succeeded if you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream Then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Waheed Al-Kawasmi, a Jordanian-born, multiple Emmy award-winning director and producer. He was with Fox Television for the launch of The Following and New Girl. He's produced content for Cheerios and Reba McIntyre. How's that for a combo? And he wrote and directed the film Jasser, starring Lorraine Brocco, about a Syrian refugee living in Memphis, Tennessee, of all places, and dealing with poverty and discrimination. And for all of you listeners to this podcast, you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Out of Tahini from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. Not only is it a Middle Eastern-themed song in honor of Wahid's background, but I'm sure... That they eat tahini in Jordan too. So, Wahid, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you for having me. And yes, we do eat a lot of
1: tahini, man. It's in hummus, it's in baba ganoush, it's in the falafels, it's in
0: everything. That's it, man. Tahini is great. All right, I got to tell you my little Jordanian story, okay, to start this out. I was flying from Dubai to Israel. This is about 10 years ago. You couldn't fly at that time directly. Okay, so you had to go through Jordan. So we landed in Amman and we stayed overnight in Amman. And in the morning before we left, we went into the town and we went to the marketplace. And the marketplace was like out of the 10th century. Okay, there's chickens and goats and all kinds of animals and there's vegetables and meats. And it was a wonderful sight and sound and smell kind of experience what it was like from another century. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Right, yeah. They 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 still have a connection to the land over there that we kind of lost here in the West because we industrialized so fast, you know? There is this whole vibe of, this is how we used to do it as humans back in the day for so long over there. And I'm kind of in a way proud that they have not lost it, but yes, it is absolute chaos. I mean, every animal you can imagine you know, is there for sale. Every vegetable that you can see, you know, from, uh, well, you know, they're the original, um, what do we call that? Like foodies in a way, you know, they only eat in season vegetables, the, you know, uh, growing up, that's what we usually had fruits and vegetables were all what's in the season. Uh, so there's still like a connection to the land over there. That's, it's, it's a lot more prevalent than it is here.
0: Well, you're right. It's it's not Whole Foods. I'll tell you that. It's, it's not, it's but it's it's food. it's healthier and half the price. <laughs> I'm sure you're right about that. All right, I want to hear how you went from Amman, Jordan, or wherever you're from in Jordan to Cheerios. I mean, that's one heck of a jump.
1: <laughs> that's a that's a long long story. I mean, I am from Amman, Jordan, born and raised. Came to America when I was 13, uh, approximately one year pre 9/11. So I got to see what we call America pre 9-11 and post 9-11. It's like two different Americas, man. I, I, I remember there was this whole, you know, learning etiquettes in America. You don't talk about religion or politics and you agree to disagree and it's okay. And then 9-11 happened and it's just like the so division that we have here. I've kind of witnessed over the
0: past 23 years. Well, hold on a second. When you came here, did you speak English? Did you know about America? You said you were 13 at the time?
1: I was 13. Yeah. And I, I spoke English just like many other, you know, developing countries, especially ones that were occupied by either England or France. You learn the occupation language, you know? I like how you said the occupation language. The occupation <laughs> language. Yeah. The Queen's English. It's the King's English now. You know, you have to learn it. And so I had very proper English when I came here. And um, I came to Memphis, Tennessee, which, you know, they say, what up, mine? And you're like, pardon me, excuse me, (laughs) which is rude to even answer that way, which I didn't know at the time, but it was a complete culture shock because it's not really, America's number one export is media and entertainment and so you grow up in a different country seeing America through the eyes of what they exported to your country so you're thinking America is this land of you know milk and honey everyone is in California everyone is blonde <laughs> everyone is just like six foot nine gorgeous beautiful people and then you come to this country You're like oh wait it's way more diverse there are areas that are like super rich but there's like poverty here is just as bad as any other place in the world and so you you know, you get to see the real America, and it's a bit shocking
0: at first. How'd you get to Memphis, Tennessee, of all places?
1: Man, the story of most immigrants, a cousin of a cousin came here in the 50s or the 60s. And then, you know, any other family that wants to follow, a family member, it's easier to go and,
0: and, you
1: know, with someone familiar, you know. And so we happen to have a cousin here in Memphis that came here
0: in the 80s. Was there like a Jordanian population in Memphis? You know, was there a group?
1: Yeah, yeah, there was like a small group, you know, of like Palestinians and Jordanians and and some Iraqis. But, you know, our proximity in Memphis to the military bases around is is pretty close. So usually when we go to war with, with, another, with another country we kind of feel guilty as a population. So we bring a, a a large amount of that population here. We did that, you know, with with uh, Vietnam. We did that after, you know, uh, the, the invasion of Iraq twice in a way. And so usually when they get resettled, they get resettled into areas that are close enough to like Navy bases and stuff like that.
0: Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think we ever went to war with Jordan, did we?
1: No, not with Jordan, but by proxy... It becomes a destination because now there is an Iraqi friend that is here, or there is a you know a, a a different person that came here because they were in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they figured out that there was like a small little community here. So it used to be a small small community. Now it's it's larger. Now it's like there's good like 30,000 people here of Middle Eastern descent
0: in in wow. this area. Yeah, and that that's a that's pretty big. That's unbelievable. Great. Okay, so you came here the year before nine eleven. 9/11 happens and the world changes tremendously. Yeah. how did it change for you? Well,
1: it kind of what got me into filmmaking. You know, it it was very isolating. You know, you 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 know, for me, it was different because I was assimilating. So it happened during my period of assimilation into the culture here. And then you find yourself just by proxy of what your background is or your last name because it's hard to pronounce or, you know, your passport at the time is Jordanian. So you get to go, okay, well, I'm a bit isolated. I need to figure out a way to like voice that, hey, I'm not actually one of the bad guys. And so I turned into filmmaking, which (laughs) that took me through a journey of, just like any artist, uh, uh, you know, whether they are from Middle Eastern background or uh, refugee background, immigrant background or not, it's, there's a torment as an artist that you go through no matter what, which is figuring out how to express yourself. And then, you know, in my case, it's figuring out how to express myself and express what I wanted to, you know, the world to see from around me.
0: Well, you just raised an interesting point. I mean, after 9-11, people in this country were afraid of people from the Middle East, because they can't isolate one country from another. Did you find that there was a discrimination factor against you at that time?
1: Yeah, I mean definitely there was. I tried not to look into it because I'm a firm believer of if you look for it, you'll find it, you know, because I don't think I don't think everyone is inherently racist or everyone is bad just by if I don't want them to judge my book by its cover, I don't want to judge their book by their cover, you know, but I did definitely, you know, especially when I was still a teenager. I mean, you know, we're all hot-headed when we are teenagers. Can you remember what you were like when you're 16, 17, you know, you thought you knew everything. That was and- <laughs> a long time ago. Excuse me. <laughs> no, it wasn't. You're still looking good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was like that, and then you know, you get into what they call, you know, institutional racism, and I never really got into that as much. Now, I'll tell you, the discrimination that I did get was more on the social world, like dating was harder, right? Because there's this proxy of of misinformation that a lot of people form their opinion with, and so there was this, you know, uh, kind of a dating was not as easy as it was for my peers that had different backgrounds do you know what i'm saying um or yeah, trying to get into a college scholarship program you know even though academically i was doing really well there was always you know the whole you know your the, the, all eyes on you kind of situation of like well our country just got attacked it happens to be from people from your region and so there was a bit of a animosity there but it eventually dissipated and, and you know i, I barely barely Rarely ever kind of witness it or notice it that now myself, you know?
0: Good. I'm glad to hear that. All right. So tell the story again, post 9-11, you're getting a little bit older and uh, you make a decision to get into the movie business. Tell us about when that happened, how it happened and how it went.
1: The movie business, uh, it started with uh, when I was in high school. Uh, I went to Germantown High School here outside of Memphis. It's a suburb right outside of Memphis. And there happens to be a program there, man, that was really like college level television and theater program that was established by... A person who is, you know, like a father figure to me now, a mentor, l- long, you know, lifelong friend, uh, Mr. Bluestein, Frank Bluestein, and uh, he had brought in this Russian immigrant after the collapse of so- the Soviet Union to Germantown, of all places, to teach film and video. And, and this guy used to be basically the equivalent of Spielberg in Russia back in the day. And so, man, um, we call that luck right uh so i got lucky and i went to school there and i mean this was a seven million dollar tv studio it's insane for like 14 15 16 year old kids to be playing with like that kind of a level uh of, of and there was like a level of excellence that's expected of you from both teachers and all the people that were there so by the time I graduated, man, I had a tapped into a network of alumni that stretched back to 1984. So some of them were already making movies with Will Ferrell. Some of them were already directing big time commercials and working for National Geographic or you know, for Brian Williams, like one of the producers for him graduated from that little school and uh, and and through that program. And so I just fell in love with it and and continued from that day until now in this career. I've I've never really done much outside of of directing and producing and writing and it's it's the it's the most fun form because you never do the same job twice i mean you use the same tools you use the same elements but You know, you get to tell different stories on so many different levels, Uh, you know, from commercials that is still telling a story. It's in 30 seconds, mind you, and it's a service for someone else. But learning how to tell someone else's message helps you learn how to tell your own message when it comes to, you know, making feature films, which is not an easy task. I mean, financially and or mentally and or creatively, It's, uh, it's, it's a giant undertaking because you're creating something from scratch.
0: Well, that's true. But there's a big, big leap from doing commercials for Cheerios to making your own film, okay, because you got to, as you just said, you got to raise the money, you got to get the actors and actresses, you, you, you know, whether you're the producer or the director, and that's a big leap, as I just said, so you started out doing commercials. You did uh, Reba McIntyre and Cheerios. I don't know what was Reba McIntyre eating the Cheerios. Or was, was that a separate? <laughs> yeah, now, that no. would have been an interesting commercial, Wahid, Okay, right,
1: right. Well, you know, we <laughs> we pitched it, and it was like, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, no. I mean, you know, I produced uh, quite a bit of TV shows, uh, and and the Reba uh, TV show that we did was. Kind of like uh, on on the front end of her comeback because she had uh, not released any albums in a while. And a buddy of mine, uh, his name is Kenny Jackson, he's a director. He's like, hey, there's this opportunity coming up. And I was like, cool, we'll, we'll, I'll produce it for you. And uh, kind of went from there. But that's where the Cheerios came from and all of that stuff. You know, national brand commercials, those are always fun. You cut your teeth on it. And like you said, there is a big difference between that and directing a feature film where you're actually like having to maintain the whole story together and, and you know, remember why you're making the film, the, what's the message of the film, that you're not how to get all the characters to still carry their performance through act one, two, and three. <laughs> and then, you know, you, you're, you're also thinking about making sure your editor has their shots and, and that the sound was actually captured correctly. And then where this moment and this beat is going to lead to, you know, five. Five, 6 days from now when we're shooting the second part of that scene, you know, out of order due to necessities of scheduling and having to like creatively remember how to maintain and tie all of that together in a nice bow to present the film. Yeah, it's it's a big stark difference, but the principles are generally the same, the mechanics on set.
0: Right, at the end of the day it all comes out on the screen. Yeah. hi everybody i'm robert miller your host as you know by now i'm a professional musician in addition to hosting this follow your dream podcast in fact i just released my 13th album all since i followed my dream after i turned 60. the album is called it's alive and it's a live recording by my band project grand slam featuring 13 of our greatest hits recorded at festivals in Pennsylvania and Serbia. The reviewers have called it a masterpiece and an instant classic. I introduced this album through a podcast episode, which has now been downloaded by thousands of listeners from over 120 countries, which shows the power and worldwide reach of this podcast. When I began the podcast, I had no idea where it would go. But here we are, just over two years later, and the podcast is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. It's been a joyride for me, my guests, and for my thousands of listeners. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs, and you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com to check out all of our episodes, our famous guests, and much more. I want to thank you for listening, and keep on rocking. You know, look. I've had a, a number of kind of first-time directors on the podcast, and they all talked about the things you just alluded to, the scheduling issues, the financing issues, the distribution issues. Of course, as a consuming public, we don't think about this. We just think about being able to go on to uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever and you know, hit the button and you get the movie after you pay $3.49 or whatever it was. but. All the stuff behind the scenes that goes into movie making, just like in all the arts, music is no different. There's a lot of prep and there's an awful lot of work behind the scenes that results in a final product. In the movie business, that's where it's at. And I'm I'm so interested in hearing about Jasser, this film that you made, and how you got Miss Lorraine, the star in that movie.
1: Yeah, um, well, uh, she says it publicly, you know, on a couple of the big interviews she did with Ryan Seacrest, and because a lot of them, like, how how did you get into this indie film? Uh, and you know, it's uh, uh, luck in addition to just luck is preparation, you know, meeting the opportunity. And I think sometimes it goes both ways. And uh, what she said was the script, script, script. She loved the script. She really liked the story and the message behind it. She felt she's at a at a point in her career where she can excel at a role like that. It's a, it's a very interesting role that is 3D. uh, It's three dimensional and and it's not um, disingenuous in a way. Right. And so there's this whole kind of a, um, there's a journey that you take with that character as an audience member.
0: Before you get into that, tell everybody what the story is, what the theme is and how Lorraine Bracco fits into this. Right. Well,
1: so, Jasser is a look at the division in the United States, uh, the political division in the United States of America, through the eyes of a Syrian refugee, an ambitious young black man from North Memphis, an opiate addicted conservative lady in Memphis, Tennessee, and it's it's a it's it's play on dichotomy on you know race and geopolitical issues mixed with blight and injustice, but it's not really about just showing what the problems are. It's about showing how people from all backgrounds one way or another have very similar traits and one way or another judge each other and one way or another actually still really need each other. And that's the character that she ended up playing, the opiate-addicted conservative supporter, uh, you know, I guess I would say a Trumpist kind of a, a character and her next door neighbor happens to be the Syrian refugee. So the film is kind of inherently funny just by that, <laughs> but also like extremely dramatic and and it's very gritty, man. It's uh, We, we kind of try... I i tried to capture the soul and the grit of the south because it's a unique place place within america let alone the entire world and let alone bringing someone from syria and putting him here in the south right next to a a person who is half out their mind you know someone who lost their hopes for chasing their dreams they lost their ambition to chase their dreams and they're living in the after effect of not taking risks in a way because life is risky and they did not want to take the risk and they got the tab for not taking the risk and you know that tab is is not fun
0: i'm sure you're right now but go back a little bit i want to hear how you got lorraine brocco into the movie was it through an agent did you go directly to her
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's through the agency, you know, just just as um, any kind of a a film where you are getting to that level, you know, you have to have the financing and structure in place. You know, you have to kind of know all the business aspects of it and you have to know how to reach out to different agencies and reach out to different people to
0: be able to, you know, offer the film. So you had the finances in place before you put her and the others into the into the film? It it was it was a moving
1: target. You know, we had uh we, we had financing enough to where we can start. Do you know what I'm saying? Where we can actually make some moves, like put uh escrow stuff down and figure out, you know, um, how to take it from now it's been developed, we're about to hit pre-production into production. So yeah, we had that in place, or else obviously you can't get to that
0: point. Also, lawyers help a lot with that stuff. So <laughs> All right. But you didn't have enough money at that moment to finish the movie is kind of what you're saying, right? No.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it became a moving target because here's what happened to us. What happened is COVID. <laughs> so everything went up by 20 to 30% because all of a sudden now we're, I'm having to test, you know, the entire crew four times a week. And we, we filmed like in November, 2020, not And like almost three or four films in the whole world were shooting at that point. There was not much going on. I mean, we were one of the first films that SAG allowed to film, you know, based on their rules. I think we started filming two days after the white paper from the industry came out on how to, you know, how to film and you have to get approval by them. And so the cost was always fluctuating because now you have this unknown variable element that comes into your, you know, schedule of you have to and their people's lives are you know on the line it's not anything sure. to play around with so yeah that that budget went up a lot because of it
0: <laughs> but you know you go and you raise more the filming took place in or around memphis or the area that this took place yeah all in memphis
1: this was my like love song to the city that gave me refuge when i first came here so
0: did the city cooperate? I'm sure they had some kind of a film department or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the
1: city was, was wonderful and very instrumental in, in making sure we were able to actually film and film safely. And, you know, the health department here kind of helped us out a lot. So it was, uh, it was definitely at the beginning of COVID, pre the whole cultural war, political war, getting into it and politicizing it. It was when people still wanted to help each other.
0: <laughs> That's nice to hear. All right. So you got the film made. Somehow or other, you got the extra money to do the ending of the film. Tell us what happened with the film afterwards. Did it go out for public distribution? Did it go right to cable? What what happened?
1: Man- I went and Knocked on so many doors. I went to all the big festivals, the tier one festivals. I have Lorraine Bracco. I have a really good movie. I'm not saying that because it's my film. It's a film that like people don't yawn and walk out of, you know, I mean, people are laughing, crying. So the, the offers I got were really money wise, monetarily, it would have been the dumbest thing to do to take any of them, you know?
0: Is this for the streaming services you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but yes, you know, streaming come services. On, naming names is yeah. worth so much fun. <laughs> maybe maybe four or five films in, not not after the first one. Um, but, you know, I we went around to distributors, mid-level distributors, to streaming services. We have a finished film, so, you know, your risk is mitigated. It's gone almost, right? right? You can watch the film. You can say, I like it or don't like it. But what you can't do is come in and offer something that's like, you know, nothing almost nothing which is what's happening in our industry right now because so many people are figuring out how to get films financed in a way and they're completing the product and the, sometimes the product is fantastic and sometimes it's awful but either way some of these middle and smaller distributors don't really put up too much you know upfront minimum guarantees they're not willing to give you a commitment on how much marketing dollars they're going to be able to put towards it. They're not going to give you a commitment on how much they think the phone booth is going to you know, generate in revenue, uh, to be honest with you, which is kind of ridiculous. It's like if I'm selling my house and my real estate agent comes in and he goes, well, great, I will be your agent and I'll sell the house for you. I'm like, well, uh, how much do you think my house is worth? Well, I can't tell you that's not how the market works. And you're like, come on, dude, I'm not going to hire you. Um, and so that was my experience with it.
0: So you don't go directly to the Amazon primes of the world. You go through the middle people. Is that the idea?
1: You can go to the Amazon primes of the world directly if you have an agency or you're represented by someone. And again, that's four or five different sets of things. So you have a sales agent or you have a lawyer and then they have a lawyer and then the company that does the delivery has a lawyer. And then between all those, someone is getting... 20%, 10%, 5%. By the time it comes to you, you're making, you know, if you're, you know, going to Apple and it's 70 cents on the dollar back in, you know, in pay to your split with Apple from that 70, you're getting 10 to 15 cents at the end of it. Yep. You know, and so, and I was like, and there's no, it's not like back in the day where they're like, Hey, we'll, we'll give you another movie to make it, you know, to, to, to direct or whatever. It doesn't work that way anymore. And when it does, it does for a very small portion of people, right? It's like two or 3% of the entire population that works in this industry. So I decided, no.
0: You know, what's interesting here is that as a consumer, there's so many different platforms now. Yeah. you can get you know, video films, et cetera. You would just think that this is a golden age for filmmakers because there's so many platforms, and yet you're describing kind of the underbelly of this whole thing.
1: Right, right. The golden age of content being produced, absolutely. Not the golden age as far as making a living and being able to sustain yourself financially, to be honest with you that's why it's hard for you know you, you don't it, not a lot of directors get to direct a second film uh not a lot of you know studios get to put out two or three four different films you know so a lot of them kind of collapse after the first or second one because the financial incentive is is starting to kind of leak away in 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 a in a sense right because a lot of tech companies are in it to get content they need hours to get eyeballs right and they're willing to pay if they're developing it but if you do something on your own and you take it to them the the pay what used to be solid back in the day has diminished a little bit so you can take it to market yourself though if you know your audience and if you know and you're intelligent enough maybe let's say in the business and in marketing and that's kind of what we did with this film so tier 1 you know we go to sundance we don't get it okay no worries we'll we'll go ahead and we'll obama this we'll do grassroots campaign basically <laughs> and we'll go to all of Middle America, we'll go to you know I mean we're selling out shows in Nashville, we're selling out shows in Bend, Oregon. You know we're selling out to a Democratic audience, we're selling out to an aging conservative audience because our film has a message of unity
0: between both of them. So you're doing your own shows in these different places? Is that the idea? Yeah,
1: so so I I started doing some of that and bringing in the actors with me, bringing in Malik and Tutweezy. Malik is the star of the film who plays the character of Jasper and then you know i mean before you know it we were able to get um you know uh uh Roger Ebert to say you know Malik's performance in the film was one of the greatest you know uh, uh debuts of the year of 2022
0: that doesn't hurt that's for sure
1: it doesn't hurt and then you know you have all the talk about Lorraine and how amazing her performance in it and you know i mean some said her best performance is good fellas so that started helping and that started connecting people To us. And then they started, they saw the film. And the word of mouth got around because of that. And we were able to take it and go all the way to get listed as eligible for best picture by the Oscars. This year, January. Good for you. And so, you know, and we ended up going to Sundance on our own. We were not part of Sundance, but we we had our own exhibition there. We brought up because the film has original songs, which is a mix of blues and rap with a lot of Memphis musicians. So I just took the entire cast and crew basically and we just went to sundance and we did that we showed the film then we played a concert of the music of the film you know which is like a really really fun fun like set and setting and uh man it was a blast that was clever yeah and then we put it in cinemas on our own 70 cities 126 uh cinemas and Put it out. It's now available on Apple TV and Google, and you know Amazon and Microsoft and Xbox and all the good jazz. I did all that on my own.
0: Good for you. All right. So this is a success at the end of the day because you got the film made, you got great reviews, and you got it out there so everybody can actually see it. So good. Kudos to you. Tell us what's next for you, Wahid.
1: Oh man, what's next is I'm um getting the second feature film going. That one's gonna be called Jinx. Uh it's like a little crossover between Little Miss Sunshine and the Terminator. So that'll be uh <laughs> that'll be a fun one to to dive into and, and try to explore what human psychology is like hundred years from now. And uh, you know, I'm hoping to continue working with some talented actors, man, that just know how to bring uh
0: beautiful human stories to life, you know. Well, listen, you've done very well so far in your career. I wish you the best going forward. We have been speaking here with Wahid Al Kawasmi, who just finished and uh, has been promoting the film Jasser. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast, Wahid. Thank you, Robert. Really appreciate you and your time. And now we're going to listen to that song that started off the podcast. It's my song called Out of Tahini. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at com, And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.